Hi, I'm Marika and welcome to Money Chill Out. On this podcast, I want to dive into the world of the often unspoken topic of money. Effective personal finance management can be a great liberator, but also a huge stress factor in our lives. After a 10-year career on trading flows in London, I want to help demystify the intimidating world of finance and have an open, honest and frank conversation. By opening the discussion, I wish you identify yourself, learn, be inspired and get empowered. Every other week, I'll be joined by guests for conversation on money, mindsets, investment habits and any best practices they abide by. So join me on this journey as we unpick the complexities of finance and get more comfortable talking about our money. And when you're ready to go further in mastering your finances, come and work with me on a one-to-one coaching. You'll grow your awareness, move on with your projects, and have an accountability buddy to track your progress. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Carla, who spent most of her career as an international tax specialist for two of the big four global accounting practices. She now is the founder of Wellsbright, which is a workplace financial well-being provider, giving employees meaningful financial education to empower them to better understand how money works. As you'll quickly notice, she's from Ireland, but lives in London. So hi, Carla, how are you? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm super well as well. Thank you so much to be on this podcast and thanks for your time. I'm very, very keen to speak about taxis and we'll start with taxis in general but quickly move to the ones more specific to investments and I also want to speak about our relationship to taxis which I guess is a lot like Marmite for a lot of people either you love it or you hate it so can you tell us a bit about you Yeah, sure. So I'm Carla. I'm the founder of a company called Wealthbright, which is providing financial education in the workplace for employees to learn more about how to manage their money, both in terms of the income, the pay they receive, benefits they get, but also how does it work outside of the office? So how to manage your money for buying a house or for retirement or maybe to start a family. So that's what I'm doing now. But before I used to be a tax advisor. So I was working in international tax for two of the big four accounting practices. And yeah, I did that for many years before I decided to become an entrepreneur. That's nice. I like the move. And can you tell me, how can you be an international tax advisor? As for me, taxes are super specific to a country. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a great question. I was smiling when I saw that you wanted to chat about this because it is a kind of difficult concept to understand. But effectively, you're right. Taxes in each country can be very, very, very different. And uh, the role of international tax advisors is to know your own country's tax very well. So for me, that was the United Kingdom. But you build up a practice of sort of expertise in working with other countries. So some people, they do a lot of work with the United States. So they know the US tax rules very well and they know businesses that work there. So, you know, they have a lot of similar clients working in the same places. For me, actually, I did a lot of work in Europe. So specifically working with UK 
UK companies looking to expand across borders. So maybe either going into Europe or maybe European companies coming into the UK. So again, it's it's not about knowing all of the rules of all the different countries, but actually building up a practice and an understanding and awareness of the types of rules that exist in different territories. Mm-hmm. I see, I see. That's super clear. And can you tell us why you founded Wellsbright? Why that move? Yeah, sure. So I guess, you know, whilst I was working in tax, I used to do a lot of outreach with actually school age children. And um, that was primarily to help them kind of think about, well, maybe actually I do belong in a place like PwC and EY, which were the two companies I worked for, you know, introducing them to careers in these places. And maybe for young people that might be, that was the first time someone in their family went to university, or perhaps they never really thought about doing a career in accounting or tax or law. And I really enjoyed that experience. And actually, for me, there was something around honing into the education that is needed to help people understand life skills that make them successful in work and life. And from there, I kind of started doing a bit more around financial education. So I designed and ran a full day sort of learning event for school-aged children to teach them about taxes. Why? Because for me, you cannot talk about financial education and not talk about tax. And actually that happens more often than you would think. (laughs) And really, I wanted to take that learning and take that experience and make it applicable for as many people as possible. So Wealthbright is basically that desire in action. I want to help as many people as possible understand the way money works for them on an individual level and how they can engage with different financial products and understand how to do that. A lot of the time we're bombarded with adverts for invest here, put your money in this pension, consolidate your pensions with this person or, you know, whatever it might be, health insurance, life insurance. But actually we have very little by way of education about the pros and cons And the choices, how to understand the choices that you're making when you choose to put your money somewhere. So that's, again, what Wealthbrite's all about. It's about saying, hey, we're not going to tell you what to do, but we're going to give you the information so that you can go out in the world and feel more confident about the financial choices you're making. Mm, I really like the vision. Nice. (laughs) So let's dive into taxis. So when we think about taxis, there's probably the first one that comes to our mind is the income tax. But of course, there's so much more than that. So can you give us like an overview from, let's say, the VAT, which is probably the most common to PIN tax? Yeah, it's a really important point, actually, that you raise when we talk about tax. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about you know, what is the biggest tax or which tax raises the most money in the UK? I remember asking my dad this once and I said to him, hey, dad, which tax do you think raises the most? And I think he said something like, oh, well, it must be business taxes, right? You know, corporation tax. And I said, no, no, actually, no, it's not. The big three in the United Kingdom are income tax, like you said, but also national insurance and VAT. So, and actually, when you think about it, who's paying those taxes? All those three taxes are being paid by individuals. Of course, businesses pay VAT, but in fact, it's often reflected in either higher costs for the people buying goods and services. So actually, in the end, you know, it's always an individual that's paying these taxes. 
But yeah, so we have a wide range of taxes. Those are the big three here in the UK. But like you said, there's sort of other taxes in the mix. So people might be familiar with fuel duty. So this is um, something that's been in the press quite a lot lately with the rising cost of energy. In the UK, again, we've had a freeze on fuel duty, which has been in place for a long time. And then also other taxes people might think of, air passenger duty, that's a tax on the price of your airline tickets that comes through. It's a, it's a cost to the business, but it gets passed to the individual. You might have come across even things like you said, the pink tax. Now, the pink tax is worth kind of pausing on because actually it's not a tax that's levied by government. The pink tax is an idea based around the very real fact that a lot of female products tend to be more expensive than those that are aimed at men. You know, things like razors, things like tampons, haircuts, you know, these things all seem to be more expensive for women than they are for men. And the question is, why? Is this like a hidden tax that's levied at women? So it's a very interesting debate. I actually sat down with uh, some female founders not that long ago to really get into the the detail around sort of the pink tax and what different countries are doing to try and reckon with this and how can legislators try and unwind this negative impact of goods being more expensive for women than to men. But uh, yeah, it's a fascinating issue. (laughs) I like it. I can feel your passion. That's cool. (laughs) So let's talk about taxes on investments now. Yeah, sure. So of course, depending on what you do and what asset class you actually buy, you may be liable to quite a few taxes. So again, to start with, probably the most common is probably the rental income. So as soon as you have a property, you let you subject to income tax. So can you tell us a bit more on that? And and can you deduct as well a few things like the interest on your mortgage or maybe some renovation works that you've done? Yeah, again, you know, this is something I think really important to talk about because there are a lot of people who, like you say, invest in property and they have a maybe let it out for someone else, either part time or full time. Maybe it's a summer holiday let or or maybe they have somebody, a tenant in there full time. If you do have a situation like that and you are earning rental income, then yes, you will need to declare that income to the tax authorities and you'll possibly be liable to tax. It is most likely you'll be liable to tax depending on how much you're earning and what your total earnings are. But if we assume you're liable to tax, then you'll be subject to income tax, just like you said on that income. Now, Whether you can deduct any costs against that income, great question. Actually, here in the United Kingdom, the rules changed about two years ago. So now you can no longer deduct interest payments on your mortgage. So that was a big sort of, I guess, giveaway for buy-to-let property owners previously. But over the years, that came down in terms of the amount you could claim. And now, no, it's totally out. It's non-deductible. So you can't offset that amount. From a renovation perspective, it's a little bit complicated, but you need to look at whether or not what you've done has been incremental to the value of the property and if it's changed the state of that property. So 
let me give you an example. Let's say you bought a property that's really run down and actually it needs a total redoing internally. So fully new kitchen, new bathroom, everything. You you invest that work and you pay to have that work done. Now, that type of renovation work might be something that you can deduct, but you may be deducting it against the capital value of the property, not against your rental income, because, of course, it goes to the overall value of your capital asset. And then let's imagine you continue to hold that property for maybe 20 years. And somewhere down the line, you have a new tenant that says, look, this kitchen's really outdated and uh, I'd really like a new one. And you put it in again. Well, it depends, but you might be in a situation where actually that second kitchen renovation that you do, if actually the state of the kitchen wasn't like terrible, you were just updating it for a fresher, newer look, then actually you're not getting a deduction for that. And that's one of the reasons why actually there'll probably be a lot of tenants who find landlords aren't that keen to do some of these renovation works because maybe they're not actually getting a deduction for it. So those parts of our rules in the UK are a little bit complicated. You need to kind of look at what's happening with the value of the asset. But yes, as a general rule, rental income, absolutely taxable. What you get to deduct in terms of your overall tax position, not necessarily so straightforward. So definitely needs to be looked at closer. Yeah, thanks. It's super clear. Like it. So imagine then you have uh, shares in a company. So it means you have equity. You may get dividend payments. So what about the tax on the dividends? Yeah, absolutely. So in the UK, you can earn up to £2,000 in dividend income tax-free. So if you have shares, maybe you've uh, invested money in stocks yourself directly and you're earning dividends on those shares, then great. If it's up to £2,000, no tax to you. If you earn above that amount, then it depends how you've invested in terms of whether or not it'll be taxable in the UK. So one of the great ways of investing in the UK, which kind of allows you to earn dividend income above this threshold in a tax-free environment is to use what's known as an individual savings account or an ISA. Mm. So this way you can have a stocks and shares ISA here in the UK. And if you invest in, in stocks and shares using this vehicle, any of the gains that you earn as a result of dividend payments or gains in the value of those shares, they're tax-free whilst it's sort of in the ISA, right? So that's also another really tax-effective way of making investments. Mm -hmm. If you haven't used an ISA, then yes, you'd be subject to income tax. You're also going to be subject to national insurance contributions on the value of those dividends. So in that case, you'll see tax on that dividend value go up depending on how much you have earned and how much you have in total earnings within any tax year. Mm -hmm. So definitely use an ISA. (laughs) But actually, lots of people don't use ISAs. I think actually at the moment in the UK, something like less than 5% of the population have a stocks and shares ISA. Yeah, yeah. So very poorly utilized in terms of this option for sort of a tax efficient way of investing. But you also have to be aware that that's in part driven by the fact that we do have a lack of education around investing, tax, and how all these things work. It's not provided a standard in the UK in schools. 
And so it's left for people to kind of muddle and figure it out along the way by themselves. And if you don't come from an environment where you have family members or friends that are familiar with these financial products, it can be quite hard to be aware of the options that you have available to you. And, you know, let's be real about the situation we're in at the moment, right? For a lot of people, the single largest investments they will have are one, their workplace pension. Um, If you are putting money into a pension, you are an investor in stocks and shares. And that's great because you can deduct the, you don't pay any taxes on your income. So that's super efficient too. Exactly. So your pension, the, the invest value of your investments in your pension will grow well, hopefully we'll grow. I mean, obviously investments can go up and down, but if you're holding for the long term, the general expectation is that that pension value grows. But the great thing about a workplace pension is that you get tax relief on the value of your contributions. So for if you're putting money in, more often than not, your employer will match. In fact, in the United Kingdom, they have to match up to a minimum of 3%. Some employers go beyond that. Super. If you're not putting in money into your pension, you're leaving free money on the table. But not only are you getting your contribution and your employer's contribution, but the tax that would have been paid on the income that you chose not to receive and instead put in your pension, that money goes into your pension pot too. So it's super great for kind of really maximizing the the amount that you're investing through your pension. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's probably the best thing you can do. You save straight away 20, 40, 45%. It's absolutely. Yeah. So imagine then you have an investment portfolio. So, and thanks for shedding a light that it's not a lot of people who actually have it. (laughs) It's always good to put into context. So if you sell everything or a chunk of your investment portfolio, but even a flat as well, you are liable to capital gain tax, which is a tax on the profits when you sell an asset that's increased in value. So does it depend on the number of years you've kept it or is it like a flat tax? Yeah. So generally speaking, if you have an asset and it's increased in value and you've sold that asset, then you are liable to capital gains tax. There is no minimum number of years that you have to hold it. But I would say that the number of years that you have held the asset could be an indicator that something else is going on. So let me explain this with another example. Imagine you have invested in property. Now, what matters from a tax perspective is what your intention was with that property. So let's say you invested because you wanted to have it as a piece of part of your investment portfolio. And then somebody comes along and gives you an offer that's too good to be true. So you're like, do you know what? I wasn't going to sell this quick, but this is something I can't turn down. So you sell it. So in that situation, and let's imagine that 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 happened maybe 18 months, 24 months into your holding that flat. So in that circumstance, you know, we'd have to look at the facts and say, okay, well, did you actually intend to hold it as a long-term investment asset? If that was the case, then yes, you could be subject to capital gains tax on the increase in value. But if I use a different example, here is somebody who invests in property and they decide, actually, you know what, I'm going to flip this property. I'm going to invest in it. I'm going to turn it around, do it up and and flip it. And they keep doing that again and again, right? Well, then in that circumstance, what we're seeing and what could be seen is a behavior and a pattern of behavior that suggests this isn't an investment. This is a trade. So actually what they're doing is they are trading in property. And in that situation, it's not capital gains tax that applies on the value of the assets, it's income tax. 
So there's a little bit about the timing that also can be an indicator. I'm saying always, it very much depends on the facts, but it can be an indicator of whether or not you are genuinely investing or if you are trading. I see. Super interesting. Cool. So as you've said, there's lots of different taxes and ways to deduct. And most of the time, because we're not tax experts, we're not necessarily aware of. So from what kind of revenues or wealth do you recommend having a tax advisor to help us declare? Or in other words, when might people need or want to use a tax advisor? Yeah, I mean, this is a really great question. And it's something I think is a real challenge for a lot of people, like you said. I mean, in the UK, if you're in employment, then the way tax is levied on what you earn at work, it's all done through pay as you earn. So your employer handles the payments of all your taxes, which means actually as a general matter, people are not that familiar with how tax works. And so they don't really have to deal with the intricacies of the calculations or the filings that have to be made. But if you're somebody who has rental income or dividend income or something else that's happening in your environment, that means you've got some money to declare that has to be told to to the tax authorities, then you might be pushed into what's known as self-assessment in the UK. So this is like if you're self-employed or maybe you're a business owner or you have in employment, but you've got rental income, capital gains tax or dividend income, all these types of things. Then you have to do self-assessment. And that's where basically somebody has to fill in their tax return by themselves. <laughs> and they have to try and figure out, you know, how the rules work. Now, like you said, for a lot of people, this is just very complicated. And so they might want to talk to a tax advisor. They might want to get an accountant to help them figure out how to do this. I guess, you know, a couple of things I would say to that. First of all, obviously, that comes at a cost, and that's not always going to be available to people. And the second thing I'd say is that actually, we're quite lucky in the UK that HMRC, our tax authorities, are generally pretty good about communicating with people. And I guess the last place I'd recommend for people to look if they are trying to figure out their taxes is talking to others who might be in the same position as them. Not only will they probably learn a little bit about how to do it, but they might find themselves with some recommendations on the kind of tax advisors and accountants to use for their situation. Mm, that last advice works all the time. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Sharing and uh, cool. And um, I also love the Laffey curve, which shows the relationship between the tax rate and the amount of tax revenue collected by the governments. And sometimes what may seem like a bit counterproductive is that cutting some taxes can result in an increased total tax revenue because a tax rate that is too high may lead to people actually finding ways to avoid them. So what do you think is kind of the tipping point? Yeah, this is a very interesting discussion. And I think, so yeah, just like you say, the Laffer curve is this idea, this model that shows that there is an optimum rate of taxation for collecting taxes. And if you push tax too high, people will just avoid it won't declare their income or find some other way to get around the rules. And I guess, you know, there's been a lot of debate in the UK about this model and what it means for income taxes. And I guess I would step back a little bit and ask, what are we trying to achieve with the tax? If what you are trying to achieve with the tax, let's take an example again. In the UK in the 70s, there was a sort of a very high tax 
on income imposed. And that was part of a plan around radical redistribution of wealth in the United Kingdom. And what happened was you ended up in a position where actually there was a 80% tax on income. And actually for some very small number of people, mind you, but for some, there was like a supercharge, which meant 98% of tax on, on the income earned. Now, of course, for a lot of people, this meant that basically they either didn't tell people what they were earning or they actually, in some cases, sort of drastically moved abroad to avoid this. I think now when we think about rates of taxation, we have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to address? What's the problem we try to address? And we can't just look at tax through a single lens. So looking only at the amount of tax we raise I don't think it's the right way of looking at it. You've got to look at what is the role of government. Let's take another example, the Nordics. We know that in the Nordic countries, there is a very high rate of tax on income, much, much higher than most of Europe. But the flip side and the sort of quid pro quo of that high tax rate is they have a extremely generous welfare state. So the taxes that are being raised are being refunneled back into the system. So free childcare, excellent healthcare, excellent education, excellent social services, you know, and, you know, it's no surprise, therefore, that when you look at a lot of the happiness indexes that are run year on year, the Nordics rate very highly. Why? Because they perceive that they are receiving and living in a very generous environment. And it's the consequence of a very, very high tax rate. But they're getting something back from that. Mm. I think, you know, if I come back to some of the debate in the UK and the United States, also in France, I know in France, Macron, he scrapped the wealth tax in France, right? There is an ongoing debate about whether we should be doing something that increases the tax on super wealthy people. Now, we've talked so far about income tax. But the truth of the matter is the super rich are not rich because of income. They are rich because of capital assets. So, you know, increasing the rate of tax on income, going to do very little, right? All it's going to do is really heavily penalize people in work. So that's why, you know, in the UK, our rates of taxation on income have stayed pretty static in the last sort of 20, 30 years. You know, what is a much more interesting debate now when you think about redistribution of wealth is less about the rate of taxation on income and more about the rate of taxation on capital assets. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, you know, big difference in those tax rates here in the UK. Top end rate of taxation on income here is 45%. If you add the national insurance contribution, it does go up. It's more like 60%. But on the capital gains side, the highest rate of taxation, which is only levied on certain assets, is 28%. The main rate of tax on capital gains, tax, capital gains is uh, 20%. So you see a huge difference in how we are rewarding wealth, taxing wealth on capital assets. So I think there's a question, is that rate appropriate, continue to be right? Is there a case to be made for raising that? especially as we've seen wealth inequality rise, particularly during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic. Yeah, this is a one of the, I think, biggest questions that's being asked in the context of taxes today. 
And I think it will continue to be very prominent in not just the tax world, but also in the political and economic world, because it all comes back to the question of what is it that we're trying to achieve? you know, from an economic perspective, and how much can tax go to help achieve that outcome? And, you know, the Laffer curve shows you that tax can only go so far. So, yeah, it's super interesting. No, but thank you so much for giving so much perspective from all the different taxes and the capital and the income. Yeah, fascinating. And you're in the process of launching a new show called the Wealth Makers Podcast. So can you tell us a bit more? Sure, absolutely. So this is yeah, a new YouTube podcast series that I'm launching this year. It should be coming out sometime in the summer. Basically, we want to challenge the question of what it takes to be wealthy and make wealth. So a lot of people, if I ask you, what does wealth mean? They think of having lots of money. Yeah, okay, that's one part of the equation. Who is wealthy? Are we thinking Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos? Yep, certainly, no doubt, super wealthy. But actually, you know, part of what I'm trying to do at Wealthbright is educate people on the mindset, the psychological and emotional parts of the equation that make up financial well-being. So the Wealthmakers podcast is basically a chance, a series of interviews with people who are sort of top in their field, learning about the habits and behaviors of wealthy people that we can learn from, and also looking at what are these other facets of what it takes to be truly financially well not just the number that's sitting in your bank account. So yeah, so that's coming soon. Yeah, so definitely let us know because I'm already super interested. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Carla, for this discussion. I enjoyed it so much. I can feel your passion and taxes is not necessarily like the most appealing subject when you think about tax, but you make it super interesting, super informative. You give concepts and background. And so it's really an eye opener. So thanks for sharing and, and all the best. Oh, thank you very much. It's been great to join you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to listening to this on your future episodes. <laughs> great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So at the end of this episode, I hope you're as enthusiastic as I am. You can find the notes and the key takeaways on my website at maricafino.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and spread the word. Thank you.